The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. that's joining as usual appreciate those that keep coming back day after day as i do these spaces conversations with various thought leaders my name is michael Gaiat, publisher of the lead lag report joining me for the hour guy adami a man who uh, needs no introduction given how long he's been on cnbc and been doing the media rounds here for uh, quite some time but i still would like to do an introduction to guy so uh, before we get too deep into anything here just i want you to do a little bit of an origin story i did this with ron and sana not too long ago Talk about your background. How'd you get involved in markets? How'd you get involved with CNBC? And what is it that you think people should know about you that they don't? Well, I appreciate you having me on, and I'm honored to be here. I, you do great work, so thank you. In terms of my background, I mean, it's really not all that interesting. But what I'll tell you is, that both my parents were attorneys, and in 1985, they were representing a gentleman that had left his energy trading job to go work at a place called Drexel Burnham. I'm sure some of your listeners remember that. They were representing him in a suit he had against his prior employer. Long story short, they said, you know, by the way, our son's a senior in college. Would you mind if you talk to him? So they said, if you can come over Christmas break, that would be great. So for a week in December of 1985, I went down to 60 Broad Street every day, sat on a trading desk and nobody spoke to me until Friday. When somebody finally came up and said, "Listen, Junior, you've been coming up every, you've been coming down here every day. You haven't said a word. You know what? What's you know what's your deal? I'll I'll leave the vernacular out of it." But I said I was hoping to get a job when I graduated. They said, "Well, when you graduate," I said in May. They said, "We'll come back when you graduate," and that that was my interview at Drexel Burnham Lambert, and that's how I got the job. I'll tell you that back then, obviously, it was a lot easier to get jobs. It was also a lot easier to lose your job. People would be fired seemingly on a daily basis for no apparent reason. So the world was much different then. But you know, I started in Wall Street in 1986 as a commodity trader. And 36 years later, which is remarkable, here I am. I mean, the CNBC stuff is fascinating, but I don't want to bore the shit out of your listeners. But I will tell you that, you know, we're now 15 and a half years into Fast Money as a nightly show at five o'clock Eastern time. And I'm the only original one left, not only on air, but in terms of some of the production and background people as well. I'm curious, Guy, you, you talked about your parents being attorneys. And you know, to be a good attorney, obviously, you have to be able to put together a bunch of facts and you got to be able to communicate properly. Are there certain aspects in terms of you were growing up and, and listening to your parents and the way that they would communicate? Do you think some of that translated into how you not only look at markets, but also talk about markets? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. You've heard this a thousand times, but in case you haven't heard it, you have two ears and one mouth and you should act, you know, appropriately as to the percentages of both. So I try to listen more than I talk. And I think that's helped me because I think to the extent that you can actually listen to people and synthesize, it helps you to ask better questions and just sort of think about the world a little bit better. And I say this, and I absolutely believe it. I think the smarter you are, the more difficult it is to be on television, which is why I'm able to do it, because I'm not that bright. But I'm able to sort of synthesize and, and make things accessible to people, I hope, that historically have never been that accessible and historically have been really scary and esoteric and intimidating. I think one of the things we've been successful doing in Fast Money is making the esoteric and the scary and intimidating fun and accessible. So I think my parents taught me just how to keep your mouth shut and listen and how to synthesize and sort of formulate an argument. All right. So that's a good direction to go because, yeah, there, there's, there are a lot of people that are big fans of shows like what you do and, and financial media, traditional financial media. And then, you know, obviously there's those that are critics of the idea that it's entertainment and maybe less so on the education. And I, I think you guys do a pretty good job in, in balancing the two. But do you think that financial media has become a, more showy over the years? I mean, it used to be the case. It was very much about sort of the facts, right? Now there's like old news, right? Opinions. There's, there's, you know, there's lights, there's, there's all kinds of production elements to these programs. And I understand obviously that's sort of the game that has to be played because that's what gets attention. But um, I just wonder if you think that that maybe creates sort of a, a disservice maybe for some viewers. Well, I mean, I can only really speak to our show and we've been pretty consistent in what we've been doing, as I said, for the last 15 and a half years. And listen, television, radio, Twitter, I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, there's an aspect of being entertaining on it without question. And I don't think, you know, I think embedded in that question, somehow entertainment is a negative thing. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think to the extent that you can make things fun for people and still educate and inform and help them, I think that's actually sort of the secret sauce. So, you know, we're not trying to split the atom. You know, people think incorrectly, in my opinion, that we're some stock picking show, which is really not what we're trying to do. We obviously talk about stocks, but we're trying to give people a framework and try to help them think about things maybe differently than they historically have. And, you know, just to try to create a dialogue. So, Again, I understand what you're saying. I mean, everybody's trying to everybody's trying to garner the same eyeballs, but and if that requires them to do things that people feel are unsavory, then don't watch. But I mean, in terms of what we've been trying to do, you know, I think we've been pretty respectful. I think we've been pretty I think I want to say there's been a continuity and a consistency to what we've been doing now again for the last 15 and a half years. Yeah, no no, for sure. And 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 to, also to your credit and every that that you know, do, does these kind of shows. It's a lot of work. I mean, I think it's very easy for people to criticize anybody that's in financial media, but you know, it takes a lot of time and effort to prep and figure out what to say, and then obviously communicate in a way that's intelligent. And I'm, I'm curious, guy. You know, you're, you're doing this, you know, regularly, obviously, and you know, you're immersed in markets. But what is your own process for preparing for these types of shows and these kinds of conversations? Are you? Do you have watch lists? Do you have alerts that kind of get you intrigued in terms of? something maybe to talk about, because you know, that, that's a really interesting aspect to this business, which I think is underappreciated, the prep work that goes into talking and doing analysis live. Yeah, to your point, I mean, it may look easy, it may look glib or off the cuff, and I think to a certain extent, 
you want it to look and feel that way. But the reality is it does require a lot of work. Now, I will say, if I'm being honest, which I am to a fault, obviously the preparation now in terms of time commitment is not nearly what it was when we first started as a segment in 2006 is on a nightly show in 2007. But that doesn't mean the effort's not there. It just means you're able to sort of work more efficiently. And I think that's what I do in terms of how I do it. You know, I say all the time, paying attention is the cheapest thing that you can do. And I try to pay attention. I read a lot. It's not particularly sexy, but you know, I try to read a lot and try to sort of understand what's going on in the world. And then I try to connect the dots and, you know, in terms of how it Im- impacts and influence and creates opportunities and markets. So for me, really, it's just, it's really reading a lot and listening a lot. All right. So, 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 okay. So, so a couple things. The, uh, you mentioned, you know, being on the trading desk when you were much younger, you've been at this for, I think you said 35 some odd years or so. I'm curious, given how long you've been at this, has the trading game changed over the years? I mean, arguably, you can make the case that you know people could always buy and sell, obviously. But now, with so uh, with, with with friction being as as low as it is in terms of commissions and slippage, you know the activity's got to be a lot higher nowadays. But but talk about sort of the evolution of trading over the years here. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Yeah, no question about it. In terms of what I did for a living, it used to be instinct used to matter in terms of trading commodities specifically. I'm sure to a certain extent equities as well, but obviously that's changed a lot. I think maybe there's sort of a mythology around instinct and stuff, and maybe we've learned over the years that the instinctual traders, maybe they were just lucky, or maybe there's really no such thing. I'm not sure. Obviously, the advent of electronic trading and algorithms and machine learning, that's changed the game a lot. But in terms of markets, markets are still pretty much markets, right? Things go up and down a lot of times for fundamental reasons, oftentimes, you know, mob mentality. I think the one thing that has changed and I get a lot of pushback with this from time to time, but I think it's true. I think the playing field has never been more level for the individual investor or trader, quite frankly, in terms of just the access to information, the ability to access markets, and quite frankly, the costs associated with it. So you know, people will say the game is rigged. I understand that. But you know, in terms of just level playing fields, you know, I think we're pretty damn level right now. Now you also get the pushback, the payment for order flow stuff, and that you know how that impacts the individual investor. And you know, I get it, and everybody's trading against me, and they're they're getting in front of my orders. But if you really think about it, I think to a certain extent that might just be the cost of doing business in 2022. And that cost is de minimis at best. You use a word that I don't hear too often in financial media, which is lucky, which is interesting. I always note that success in any endeavor is a function of obsession, talent, and error. And error is luck, right? Good or bad. And this domain of investing is unlike others in the sense that 
you don't really know how much of your profitability or loss is due to luck, right? Good or bad. As you assess your own personal trading, what maybe brings up, um, brings your attention to, to whether it's skill, whether it was good trade, whether it was luck, whether it was good luck, bad luck. Talk about sort of your own self-assessment when it comes to your way of looking at markets and uh, how luck may or may not play into that. Well, I mean, depending on how arrogant you are, and there's a lot of them out there, I mean, the more arrogant you are, the less lucky you are. And that just sort of that, you know, if you just want to move that dial, I mean, I think for me and a lot of my life, it's been luck. I mean, I'm, quite frankly, I mean, as you probably have come to realize, I'm not the brightest bulb in the fixture. But you know, one of the things I say all the time, and people hear this gazillion times in their life, the harder you work, the luckier you get. So, you know, one of the things that I'm actually good at, I'm resilient as hell. And, you know, I'll pretty much outwork anybody given the opportunity. So that does create luck. But is there a skill associated with it? I, 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 don't, I don't really know how to answer that. I mean, skill in terms of looking at charts or understanding fundamentals. Or, you know, the funny thing is about markets, you could tell me, you could, you could tell me news over the weekend that's going to happen and then say, how would you trade it on Monday? And I would give you a series of events or series of things how I trade it. And a lot of times that would be the exact opposite thing to do. So, you know, as skillful as a lot of people think they are, the markets have a way of humbling us all. So do I use the word luck? Absolutely. I, it's, to me, it's not a bad word. You know, there are a lot of people out there that will tell you how talented they are. You know, that works for them. That's not really my, it's never really been my game. Yeah, no, and it's not a dirty word by any means. I think it's, you know, there's a well-known behavioral finance dynamic. I think it's called the self-attribution bias, right? That if you see somebody slip on a banana, you say it's their fault. But if you slip on it, it's it's luck. It's bad luck, right? It's sort of I think kind of pervasive when it comes to investing and and especially the, the newer investors who out of the gate come out strong and think it's because of their skill, which causes them to then maybe take a larger position size than they otherwise would. And then to your point, the market humbles them. Exactly. Well, that's that's exactly right. And listen, you know, every, every you know, again, I can only really speak to the things that I do and you know, whatever, you know, certain things work for other people out there. Good for them. It's never really been my thing. I think to a fault, you know, I think you have to be somewhat introspective and self-aware. And, and I try to be, I mean, we all fall into the trap every once in a while, believing our own bullshit, but you know, I try to sort of avoid that. Let's uh, get some of the audience and go ahead and unmute. If by gig, you mean fast money. I think that's what so in 2005, 2004, 2005, I left Goldman Sachs to join a place called CIBC World Markets. And within a few months of me starting, CNBC came to broadcast from our trading floor something that we called Miracle Day. I'm sure you see a lot of firms do it now. Typically around Thanksgiving, the holidays, a lot of these firms give back commissions to local, not local charities, but national charities and the trading desk would be littered with professional athletes and actors and actresses and, you know, news folk and those types of things. And that's what we had that day. So Bertha Coombs was on our trading desk and she was looking for people to interview and nobody wanted to do it. So somebody came up to me and said, guy, would you be willing to go on there and CNBC? I said, sure. So a few minutes later, I found myself on camera with Bertha and I was on Liz Clayman's show. Some of you may be familiar with Liz. She's a friend, dear friend. I think she's been at Fox Business now for the last decade. But the interview went well, and I got a call from Liz the next day. She said, we really enjoyed having you on. Will you be interested in coming on from time to time? I said, absolutely. So for the next, I don't know, five, six months or so, I would go on air maybe once a week, a couple times a month. In November of 2005, I got a phone call from 
some of the higher ups at CNBC said, we'd like you to come in to talk about a yet to be named show that we're thinking about. So I went across the river at Englewood Cliffs. We had an impromptu dinner in one of the conference rooms and they talked about a yet to be named show and Dylan Radigan walked in and he said what their thoughts were. And over the course of about six months from November of 05 until early 2006, CNBC brought in approximately 450 or so people to interview screen tests, talk about a yet to be named show. And I was one of those people. So all through 2006, to the extent that you watch Fast Money, we were an eight minute segment on an existing show. And in September of that year, they called us, they being CNBC, called us up on a Thursday and said, look, Larry Kudlow's going on vacation next week. We want you guys to take his time slot. And that was five to six every night. And the longest I'd ever been on television for one sitting was eight minutes. And they just told us for the next week we were going to be on for an hour. But we were able to pull it off, and it went, pre- went pretty well. The network was happy. And in January of 07, we started this in earnest, and we've been on ever since. So it was never really a path that I thought about. It just sort of, obviously, there were some decisions along the way that I needed to make. But so some 15 and a half, 16 years later, here I am. Hopefully that answered your question. By, by the way, you take me back to, to 2011, mentioning Liz Clayman's name. She was the first one <laughs> to interview, ever interview me on, on air. And I was, whatever, I was 28, 29, and was all kinds of nervous. And I remember first time I went in and you know had my notes, I thought I'd you know be really tight on TV. And I was about to go on and somebody came up to me in the green room and said, you're Michael, right? I said, yeah. I said, do you need makeup? And I was like, I, I don't know, do I? And it's a very strange dynamic, this idea that you'd necessarily need to sort of look presentable, I guess, for financial media. But that's uh, more of a side note. Well, it's, it's, I will tell yeah, and the makeup thing is interesting. I mean, I've never really gotten used to it. I guess to a certain extent you do. But you'll see it, it does make a difference just in terms of the, what the lights do to you and what the cameras do to you and those types of things. So I guess looking presentable is the right way. All right. So, so real quick here. So let's, let's go to this point, a uh, guy that you mentioned about leveling the playing field. Uh, I think that's an interesting direction to go. There's this narrative, which there is a degree of truth around this idea that, you know, with the democratization of trading and basically zero commissions, that that's good. It allows retail investors to participate more in markets. But I've, always been of the mindset that if you remove barriers to entry and exit, that actually ends up being maybe a big problem and actually doesn't level the playing field at all because there's a temptation then to overtrade, right? Right. which is often where most people tend to get into trouble in terms of longer-term wealth generation. I'm curious if, if one, if you think there's some some downside right, to this idea that you level the playing field by making it you know zero commission, and how do you get people to not have that temptation. I understand, right, again, and even the name of the show is Fast Money. Everybody always wants to actively trade because they feel like they're in control of the end result. But you and I both know the reality is that going back to luck, there's a degree of luck in that. And sometimes the only way to really get lucky is to have a longer term outlook and view and investment. Yeah, listen, no question about it. I understand that. And I say it all the time. Think you're either an investor or a trader. I think it's very difficult to be both simultaneously. And the reason why I say that is, you know, if if you put something on as a trade and it immediately goes against you, the inclination is to say, well, my premise is right. And then that trade becomes an investment. And the converse is if you put something on as an investment with a five-year horizon and a week later it's up 10%-ish, you say to yourself, holy shit, I can't believe it. 
and that investment becomes a trade. So you wind up wearing both hats at the same time. And I don't think you can do that successfully over a long period of time. To your question about does the democratization create inherent problems, without question it does, because like it's like sports gambling, any of those types of things, they're going to people that get themselves in trouble almost by definition. But you have to ask yourself again, I mean, you know, that's just the trajectory of the business of all these businesses. So, I, you know, I think it has its good points. It obviously has some pitfalls. But I think on the margins, it's gotten people access to markets. And I think it's helped people understand markets and investing and trading better than they did maybe a decade or 15 years ago. And I think to a large extent, it's helped people to ask the right questions, which historically they did not have maybe the wherewithal or the knowledge base to ask. So yeah, there's clearly downsides to it. I mean, but there's there, there are always going to be, I think, growing pains to all of these different things. So I think it's interesting because you know, there's this term out there that the retail money is quote unquote, the, uh, let's call it the dumb money. And I've always had a, a problem with that term. Yeah. yeah. I know people, I've never uttered that phrase. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. And, but, and, and, and I'm with you. And, and I don't, I don't like that term myself because I think, you know, intelligence has nothing to do with anything, right? It's, but, but my, where I'm going with that is, do you think that as these newer traders and retail investors have come in, do you think, let's say the average level of education of risk management, which I think is really what education is in the context of trading, do you think that the the level of risk management and thoughtfulness around that subject has increased over time, or has that democratization resulted in more and more uneducated speculators? Yeah, that's a good question. I really haven't thought about that. I mean, my sense is risk management is the entire game, right? It's what's funny is pe- people will say to me on Twitter, and they say this in a derogatory way. You're you know, they'll say something like you're at best 50, 50, or, you know, you're, and I'm saying to myself, well, if you only really understood that if you are 50, 50 in this world, you're sort of in the hall of fame. I mean, Mark Fisher, who is a legend in the commodities world and is a dear friend, you know, he'll go and speak and he'll tell people that, you know, he's right, maybe 25%, 30% of the time. But the reason that he's successful is for the exact reasons you just stated, risk management. He understands intuitively that when you're, when you have a losing trade on, you have to know when to cut it. And he does that better than anybody. And, and conversely, when something is going your way, you need to know how to lever it. And that comes down to risk management. So whereas a lot of people can be right 50% of the time, those same people will find themselves losing money. Why? Because they let the losers run against them longer than they should. And they cut their winners too soon. And you hear that all the time, but it's true. So when it comes to risk management, I think... It's different for everybody, but there's a discipline associated with it that I think you have to be steadfast to. Yeah, no, that that I 100% agree. So, so let's let's talk about risk management in this environment for a moment. In you know what I think is now clearly everyone would agree has been a bear market, and we could be in a bear market rally. Who knows if it's actually the end of the bear market? But how do you think about risk management in different regimes? Because you know when you're in a bull market, you have less volatility. Your stops can be tighter. When you're in a bear market, things are obviously much more volatile. How does how does the regime result in changes in the way that you yourself are managing risk? Well, it's you know when you go up, if you're a baseball fan, you know if if you're heading to count three zero with the bases loaded, you know you're you're sort of you control you control the outcome to a certain extent, right? So you're you're more able to swing freely. If you're down o two, obviously you got to choke up a little bit, and that's the same thing in trading. I mean, different environments require different approaches at the at the plate. So 
I think when volatility does get to a certain level, I think you got to sort of shorten your swing up and, and look for different opportunities. The, the obviously the sort of the the oddity about all this is we're in a VIX where you know we're probably in the lower twenties right now in the volatility index in an environment that probably suggests it should be significantly higher. So as much as we think you know this is a high vol environment, the reality is it's not really volatile at all. So, but to answer your question, I just think you have to be aware. Every situation requires a, a different set of disciplines and stuff. And I think the other thing you have to understand is that what worked six months ago is not necessarily going to work today. There's a constant fluidity to this. And there's a constant, I think, just sort of change that goes on that you have to be understanding of and be willing to accept. I think the people that get themselves in trouble is they do the same thing over and over again because it worked a year ago or five years ago. And sometimes the environment changes and you have to be willing to adapt to that environment. Let's talk about that point about the VIX. I think this is something that I've heard from a lot of traders, advisors, I myself that I speak with. I have my own theories around this, but why is it that the VIX has been has not been as high as one would think in the context of high inflation, recession fears, all these things that we're all very aware of? I mean, there seems to be a, a pretty big disconnect in the quote unquote fear gauge and the actual fear that's that's out there. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I have different theories. I mean, I think, histo- well, historically, I think over the last, let's call it five, six, seven years, prior to the largesse of our central bank, the Federal Reserve, people bought insurance on their portfolios. They were long volatility as protection and made sense, right? I mean, you have home insurance, you have life insurance, you have auto insurance. I mean, so why not have insurance on your portfolios? But over time, as the Fed inserted themselves into the conversation, people started to say, well, wait a second, the market never really goes down. And when, I think maybe because people have positioned themselves for this decline and everybody's been waiting. And that's one of the reasons maybe why this VIX has been slowly coming off. So I do think there's going to be a time where you're talking about a VIX in the mid to high 30s. It's probably going to coincide, obviously, with the market trading significantly lower. But what I do find really interesting is the fact that bond volatility has probably never been higher, which is crazy if you think about it, and currency volatility is as well. So the only real ball that hasn't sort of came in lockstep with those has been equity volatility, but I just think it's a matter of time. Yeah, no, no, so actually that is an important point and related to that bond volatility point, there's a pretty tight link between treasury, long duration treasury outperformance against equities and the VIX, meaning usually when you see a VIX spike, you'll see long duration treasuries, use TLT as a proxy, have a significant outperformance run, you know, sort of a convex type of move against equities, coinciding with VIX movement. I'd argue that that's sort of a safer way of playing long vol is to go, you know, long treasury short equities when you're concerned about volatility. But to your point about bond market volatility, to me, I think one of the reasons why the VIX has been so unusually muted relative to what you think it should be is because treasuries in particular are acting so bizarrely in this equity market drawdown. I've made this point many times that historically, what we've seen the first six months of this year is beyond abnormal. Usually when you have a a drawdown in equities, treasuries don't have a similar magnitude drawdown like they've had, you know, here in 2022. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it is fascinating. And, you know, one of the mandates of the Federal Reserve apparently is price stability, which is laughable because if you look over the last 18 months, Yields have traded like $150 million biotech stocks. It's, it's, almost, it's almost a joke, and I've said that before. And 
that's really to me again at the hands just for full disclosure in case anybody doesn't know and i say this all the time and i actually believe it when i say it amongst the many villains of the 21st century and there are a lot of them central bankers are going to be very high on that list and i'm not suggesting they're bad people malicious people but the fact that they somehow believe that they can control something that they have zero control over to me is laughable. And the hubris associated with these central bankers is going to be written about for decades to come. So when you see 10-year yields go from 340 down to 275, back to 310, down to 270 in the course of maybe a few weeks, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's almost laughable. You're talking about what should be the most liquid asset, security, whatever you want to call it, in the history of mankind. But again, it trades like some bullshit biotech stock, which which is really problematic. And I've said this, and I believe it. I mean, the bond market is effectively broken, and I think people are trying to figure out you know, where yields should be. I would submit yields going higher in this environment are probably bad because it suggests that inflation continues to be out of control. And Conversely, yields going lower, as they have in the 10-year recently, is also probably bad because it speaks to what's probably going on, and that's just sort of an economic slowdown. So it's a really funny environment right now that I think I understand, but in terms of the volatility around it, you know, I don't think, and I've been doing this a long time. I mean, I haven't seen anything like this in a while. And then you add currencies in there. You know, when I first started in 1986, if if the if a currency moved a percent or two percent in a month, people would be doing jumping jacks. Now you see it over the course of a few hours every day, which again is comical. Yeah, and, and it's interesting you say that because I, I, I'm with you on that illusion that the Fed can control things, and clearly that illusion is being proven to be truly an illusion given the way the bond market pay. But it makes me also wonder if they, if there's this sort of illusion around the term "don't fight the Fed." Because to me, it's like I never had a, I never understood what that meant. I mean, there are plenty of declines in history, obviously, where the Fed tried to liquefy and the market kept on going lower. It seems that the the narrative and belief around the Fed is actually not really borne out in history. But people still believe that there's a Fed put that the Fed will will save the system when they're making it more fragile. Yeah, I understand that. I understand what people are saying by it. It was frustrating when you hear a guy like David Tepper, who's brilliant, come on, you know, when the Fed was adding liquidity to the system. He said, look, you just got to make it as simple as you possibly can. If you're bearish when the Fed is adding liquidity and lowering rates, you're fighting the Fed. And okay, that's fine. And if you want to believe that, I totally get it. And there's probably some truth to that. But since November, and if you watch Fast Money, you'll hear me say it. If that's true on one side, where by being bearish when the Fed is adding liquidity, you're fighting the Fed. It should be true that if you're bullish while they're taking away liquidity and raising rates, you're doing the same thing. If you're bullish in this environment, you're fighting the Fed. And, and I would, you know, they're going to, this course that they're on, they're going to sort of change course. We'll see what happens. And I think that's why people, I think, hold out hope that the markets can find a bottom here. And if the Fed does that, Maybe they'll be true. But if, if, in fact, they do do that, we got a lot more problems than I think people realize. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. 
By the way, everybody's here. Make sure you follow Guy here on Twitter. You can click on his profile. It's not going to take you away from the space. Click on follow. Aside from you know his his media appearances, you can tell very thoughtful in the way he constructs things in a longer form conversation like this, and and certainly is worth looking at his tweets over time here. Let's get in for a question. Go ahead. So that's pretty thoughtful. I mean, obviously, I'm not familiar with his work. I'm sure it's great. I can't speak that intelligently. What I will say is I think passive investing is fine. And when things are going higher, it obviously works. And the advent of passive investing over the last probably five or six years, coupled with the fact that you know the Federal Reserve and all these different monetary fiscal policies out there have been very supportive of markets. And passive investing to a large extent, and maybe correctly so. Again, I'm not judging, but it doesn't seem to really take into consideration any news or fundamentals. It's just this obvious, you know, continued inflow of money, which is fine. My concern along has all along has been one of the reasons, again, I mentioned the VIX earlier. I think passive investing also has helped dampen the VIX. And one of the concerns that I've had is passive investing is great, but when passive becomes active, it ain't going to be active on the way up. And to the extent that you're a football fan, I'll use this analogy and hopefully it resonates with some people. This fall, the New York Giants will be playing football once again, hope springs eternal. And on that first home game on what will probably be a beautiful September day, everybody will drive into the Meadowlands or whatever they call it now as ladies and gentlemen. No, you first, after you, everybody's in a great mood going in. Then about halftime or so, the Giants are down 17-3. It starts to rain. Everybody's pissed off. And those same people that went in as ladies and gentlemen leave like maniacs. And everybody's trying to get to the door at the same time. And to me, that's really what passive investing is. Everybody enters as ladies and gentlemen. Everything's beautiful. When everybody's trying to get out at the same time, it's anything but. And, And that's sort of my concern as to how passive manifests itself in potentially a market that's going lower. Does that make sense? I mean, I can't speak to how it influences institutions, but what I'll say is, you know, over history, th- different things change in markets and different market participants find themselves and you have to adapt accordingly. And I've said this on Fast Money, I've written about it. I don't es- underestimate the Reddit and the Wall Street bets crowd at all. To a large extent, I think they do understand markets better than people that probably do it professionally for a living. And I think they've been able to unearth and sort of shine a light on things that maybe people took for granted. But in terms of how it affects institutional desks, I think if you don't pay attention to what's going on in that silo or that vertical of the market, you're doing yourself a disservice. And I'm convinced, and I've said this on the show as well, that you know successful hedge funds probably has people monitoring those Wall Street bets and Reddit crowds and whatever you whatever those things are called, right? Those chat rooms. And you have to, to a certain extent, to understand what's going on. So to that extent, yeah, I do think it's had an impact on the institutional desks. Let me, let me turn that into a question for Guy, because I think this, it's an interesting, interesting, um, interesting discussion back to retail. Do you think, Guy, that the Fed maybe has done a disservice also in terms of making people think because of zero interest rate policy that they should be investing as opposed to saving, right? Because you can get a guaranteed rate of return by paying down your credit card, but people, I think, would rather take a gamble on the stock market. They've pushed people at the risk curve, whether they wanted to do that or not. I mean, that's the reality of the situation. And 
I, I've said this, and I believe this as well. The people that got screwed by Fed policy, the largesse of Fed policy is the lower and middle class. And the people that are getting screwed now by the Fed reversing the course are the same people, the lower and the middle class. The rich people, you know, they go to their cocktail parties on Saturday night and they'll laugh about how much they paid for gas and it doesn't really impact their life one way or another. And I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. So to answer the question, and again, history is littered with disastrous outcomes born of good intentions. And again, I'm not suggesting these are bad people. I just think that Fed policy has created the largest wealth gap in the history of this country. And, you know, they're maybe they're trying to do something about it now. We'll see. But, you know, the people that get hurt in inflation environments are not the wealthy. They're the up, the low and the middle class. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think I think that's 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 spot on. Okay, I want to go to the name of the space, right? The most obvious recession in history. There's two schools of thought there. One is that if you're contrarian, you'd make the case that maybe we're not going to have a recession because everyone seems to think that we're going to have one. You, know, you look at Google search trends; it's at the highest, really even higher than the 2008 type of levels. Everyone's talking about recession, even you know celebrities and and pop stars and all this. The other school of thought is, well, if everyone believes there's a recession, what one believes to be true is either true or becomes true. They start acting like it's going to be a recession that actually creates the recession. Where do you come out on this discussion about where we are as far as the cycle, if it's going to be a recession? And does it maybe get you excited to see so many people being so negative around the economy? You know, I'm smart enough or humorless enough to be an economist, so I don't pretend to be. And I've never really understood what difference it makes in terms of if we're actually in one, about to be in one. I, I don't know if it necessarily changes behavior. Maybe it does. Maybe it changes policy. To answer your question, does it excite me that everybody's getting negative? No, but I'm not overly excited when everybody's getting positive. You know, when everybody was un- uniformly bullish for a decade, I mean, that suggests that, you know, maybe we're about to turn and being bullish for that period of time was obviously right. So it stands to reason that just because everybody's getting negative, it doesn't necessarily mean we can't still go lower. So I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm, I guess one of my many faults is, you know, I don't get all that excited one way or another. Some, I try to sort of be sort of flatline in terms of this stuff, if that makes sense. If that's to me, there, there are obvious. There, yeah, there are a number of different out scenarios or outcomes for this, without question. I think in the short term, I think obviously behavior can drive markets. I'm still a believer that over the course of time, fundamentals do drive markets and things trade where they should. You know, based in large part to those fundamentals. And you know, under that understanding, or at least my understanding of the market, you know, I still think. We're probably too expensive in this environment. I guess historically, the S&P trades about at a 17, 17 and a half or so multiple, which is fine. And we're probably below it now, given earnings expectations. You know, my view is earnings expectations are probably still too high. And who's to say that in this environment, multiple shouldn't be lower? So one of the cases that I made in November was I thought the S&P would trade down to 37.50. We finally did get there. I think on June 15th, which was the last Fed meeting, I think, I actually said on Fast Money that day that I thought you know 4,100 or so in the S&P was in the cards. The next day, the markedly obviously cratered, but I think to a large extent that was due to the Swiss National Bank at a bit of a surprise rate hike of 50 basis points. But since then, we've been sort of grinding higher. And I think we got north of 4,000-ish last week. And, you know, I think it's probably done what it needed to do on the upside. Maybe we trade a little bit higher. But I do think 
we're probably destined for another leg lower. That's just my view. And that's my view in large part, not only on sentiment, but on fundamentals. And in that, in that leg lower, and, and I'm with you, I've made that argument that I think a bigger risk off is still coming because housing has a long way to go to, to at least somewhat get back to some degree of affordability, not just in the U.S., but globally, right? But if, if we are to have another real risk off period, do you suspect it will play out where bonds also sell off in a similar way, right? Because I think what's happened, it's interesting, if you look intraday, both small caps and treasuries bottomed the same day, intraday, June 16th. Then they both started rallying, and just like they both fell off, you have, you know, but the everything bubble results in an everything burst and then everything relief rally. And then the question then becomes, if you have another leg lower in equities, will there now be that traditional divergence, especially with treasuries against equities? What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, about? that's a good question. I mean, if you're asking me how I think it's going to play itself out, I think if the market sells off like I think it may, I think you will see a commensurate move in bond yields lower. I think you'll see a flight to quality in the bond market, and I think that'll take yields lower. I still think we probably see 2.5% or so in the 10-year, and I've said that now for the last few weeks. So that's how I think it'll play out. However, there could be a scenario where the reason the market sells off is because you see a spike in, in bond yields. So I think it's going to be the former, not the latter, but you know that's what makes markets. How closely do you do you look at credit spreads? I mean, you know, I understand. Obviously. Yeah, I mean, I talked. I was, I, you know, we were talking about the HYG before anybody even heard of it. Now, you know, that's become one of the things you hear, not on a day to day basis, but I think it's really important. Not that you should be trading the HYG, but I think to a certain extent, you have to absolutely be aware of what's going on in a high yield market, right? And just in terms of credit and stuff. So. When credit starts to break down, historically, that has not been a very good sign for the equity market. And if you look at the HYG over its lifetime, it seems to be the precursor of some pretty nasty moves. So again, I'm not suggesting people go out there and trade it, but it's absolutely something that people should have to watch. And credit hasn't been a concern for a while. It's starting to rear its ugly head, and we'll see. But you absolutely have to take that into consideration. Right. And the real signal there is around default risk. Right, that when you have sort of a, a perception that default risk is going to increase, high yield sells off, becomes higher yield. That's where you get the flight to safety trade and in treasuries. It's like I keep making that point that risk off doesn't mean no risk. Risk off means a default risk off. Yeah, that's and we'll see. And and listen, you know, just J.P. Morgan's last earnings report. I mean, their loan loss provision obviously that that came back, and I think you're starting to hear a lot of people talk about it. You're seeing it to a certain extent in the used car market. Look at. Just go back and listen to what the CEO of AT&T said last week in terms of, you know, people paying their bills and stuff. That is a concern. It, you know, again, it hasn't manifested itself into the market yet, but there are pockets of this that are popping up here and there. And I think you absolutely have to keep that on your radar screen. A lot of people, I think, are of the mindset that if we are going to have another leg lower, that you're going to see technology take the the brunt of the hit. And again, I kind of think a little bit contrarian. It's like if everyone thinks that way, maybe it's not going to quite be that way. But from a from a sector and industry perspective, Guy, are there are there certain areas that really you'd, you'd say, okay, I don't want to touch this for a while until there's a real washout? Uh, are there certain areas which maybe are more vulnerable than than most people talk about? Just just talk about some of your analysis there. Well, I mean, tech, as you know, tech, I mean, it's a very broad state. When you say technology, it's extraordinary. Right, of course. Right, sure, I mean, right. No, but I think 
I think software as a service, you know, that seemingly is, and we talked about it at the time. I mean, you go back and listen to Bill McDermott's interview with Jim Cramer, the ServiceNow CEO. I think it was two weeks ago. Time sort of eludes me, but go back and listen to what he said and you try to start to connect the dots. And, you know, Microsoft warned on currency whatever it was, two months or so ago. And my concern is that the next warning is going to be on demand. And, you know, nobody cared about these names in terms of their valuations for a long time. But I think that this is still an area where if people start to look at them on valuation and say, wait a second, you know, if we're concerned about the valuations of semiconductors and some of these other high flyers, maybe we should be concerned about some of these names. So, there's an element of concern there. We'll see what happens when Microsoft reports. I think the Apple earnings report is going to be fascinating. Not what they say necessarily for the quarter, but in terms of what they say going forward. So, look, I think there's still a lot of things out there that are expensive. And, and a lot of things that have come off 40 50% are probably still expensive. So I understand what people are saying. In terms of areas that still interest me, I mean, Big Cap Farm has been a place not to hide, but a place that's actually been extraordinary, some of their returns. Obviously, this move lower in energy is interesting. I still think there's another leg higher in commodities, specifically crude oil. We'll see if that plays itself out. So we'll see. You know, I, that's, you know, that's how I'm sort of looking at the world right now. All right. For the last few minutes here, again, everybody, make sure you follow Guy Adama here on, on Twitter and obviously continue to watch Fast Money and, and his various media appearances. For those that are, are wanting to better self-educate without having to go through the tuition of losses, which comes from experience. What's your suggestion for for self-learning? Are there certain books that were really impactful in your way they, of looking at the markets? Are there certain schools of thought that you gravitate towards that you think other people should look at? Talk about sort of the, the way that people you think should self-educate here. Well, look, there are a lot of great books out there without question. You know, Market Wizards to me was a really interesting book. I mean, market psychology stuff is always fascinating, but the best way to learn is just by doing. And there are a lot of places you can go to now. And again, it doesn't have to be a significant amount of money, but I think you know this. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know this as well. You have a heightened sense of awareness when there is money on the line. And for a lot of people that gamble on professional sports, for example, they watch that Nick Pacer game a lot closer if they have money on it than they would if they didn't. I think that's true in the markets. I think when you have money at risk, almost by definition, you're going to look at things a little closer. You're going to have a more discerning eye. And I think your level of understanding will be heightened. So to me, it's always been the best way to do it is by doing. And I'm not suggesting you put every single dollar you have into the market by any stretch, but to the extent that you have a few hundred dollars that you can put in or whatever that number is, it's different for everybody. And just sort of buy and own things that you know, I think you're going to be shocked at how your level of awareness and learning very quickly ratchets up the learning curve. Yeah, that's why I'm not a fan of uh, paper trading. There's nothing quite like actually feeling the loss and not knowing what to do when you're in that drawdown. Well, it's much different, right? I mean, it's, to your point, paper trading, I think, I think paper trading has its merits in just understanding the mechanics of how markets work and order entry and those types of things. But how it impacts you in terms of that visceral response that everybody has when money's on the line, there's no, there's no way to replicate that. Yeah, no, 100%. All right, listen, everybody, again, thank you for joining. Guy, first time you and I 
talked. I'm a big fan of Dan Nathan, who I've seen a couple times over the years and had him on one of my spaces as well. I think you guys do a great job in communicating. Thank you everyone for joining. Thank you, Guy. I appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.